My name is Scott Challoner and you are listening to the Leaders' Council podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. As regular listeners of our programme will know very well, part of our mission here at the Leaders' Council is to bring you a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. And as we record this particular podcast today on the 14th of September 2022, we pay tribute to one of our most beloved leaders and dearly departed ones at that, following the passing of Her Majesty the Queen just last week. And best wishes, of course, to the successor to the throne, King Charles III. Um, on today's programme, I'm actually joined by Jamie Bickoff-Bread from uh, from MetaHub. Um, MetaHub actually uses the latest cutting-edge visualisation technology to craft metaverse environments that help immerse your team in a custom virtual meeting hub. So some very interesting stuff to uh, talk about today around technology. And uh, Jamie, very warm welcome to you. And by all means, thank you for joining us on the show. It's a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for the invite. Yeah, I'm really interested in being able to kind of talk about where this is, uh, our leadership is all kind of moving forward and, and getting involved. So um, thanks for the invite. Yeah, fantastic, Jamie. And uh, just before we kind of get into the um, the ins and outs of the uh, the technological side of all of this, which I'm sure is going to be uh, very exciting, um, I've obviously only given a very brief outline of what it is that you do at MetaHub. But um, in your own words, um, what is it that you would say that you do just for those listeners that might not be familiar with the business? Sure. So essentially, we design virtual reality environments. So let's say you're having a meeting and you want to be able to have it in a, a metaverse space. We designed the 3D environment that allows you to go and participate and move through all the different spaces. So quite often we customize it uh, based on the experience that someone's looking to have or what they're looking to facilitate. Um, and yeah, we then do a lot of talk around uh, Web3 as well. So the kind of next evolution of the internet and decentralization and how that will impact society and how we can help people who potentially struggle to participate in centralized society and how to be able to leverage decentralized technology in order to do so as well. So really looking at the social impact of emerging technologies. Mm, Very, very interesting stuff indeed. And just uh, thinking about before we move on to those topics, um, how the business sort of came into uh, to fruition, let's say, uh, Jamie. Um, just tell me a little bit about sort of your story and sort of how you felt that going down this pathway was sort of going to be the way for you. Sure. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's never linear in these kind of things, particularly when you're talking about technology that's about 10 months, 11 months old. Um, so essentially my background started off in youth work uh, with the Prince's Trust. Um, so I was initially supported on one of their programmes uh, I moved to London on 15 grand a year, which I would recommend to my worst enemy uh, about 10 years ago, and started uh, essentially working in the youth work sector and supporting young people uh, who face great adversities into employment, education, and training. Uh, and that kind of evolved into them working on developing the STEM strategy for the charity, so how we support young people into science, technology, engineering, and maths, uh, followed up by some work for the Open Society Foundation. Um, which is the second largest philanthropy in the world and, and supporting um, on their talent functions. Before deciding to go self-employed, I made that decision uh, six months prior to actually my leaving day and then the week that I left, the week after was the pandemic. So obviously the best time to go set up your own business, mm-hmm. uh, the week before the first lockdown. And because I was doing largely training and facilitation, um, that wasn't what people were looking for at the beginning of the pandemic. So I started looking at how to use virtual reality is a way to facilitate training differently and then all of the benefits that we can have from creating these virtual spaces to be able to do that in. And that kind of took off and became its own business in itself. 
and I also do a little bit of uh, youth mental health first aid as well to keep keep to close to the youth worker roots and see what's going on in the world. Yeah, and I can imagine you're quite passionate about the youth mental health side of things as well, just kind of based on your own experiences. And I suppose it's also telling, isn't it, that the technologies you're working with, it's going to be those younger generations that are probably more likely to use them, isn't it? Definitely. I mean, there's so many questions when it comes to metaverse um, applications and how that's going to impact. The thing is, when we look at the the implementation of things like Web2, we never really thought about the wide-reaching social impact of it. And in lots mm. of ways, the, the inception of, of social media and stuff eroded our, the ability of our democracies to function in a way that they had done beforehand. The unintended consequence of, of that implementation technology, when we think about the metaverse and how people's identity is going to be shaped by the fact that they can have an avatar that doesn't reflect their, their physical self and how does that work from a mental health perspective, really kind of starts to ask a lot of questions about um, what this erosion between our material and virtual worlds means for the way that we perceive reality. That's exactly it, isn't it? Because when you talk about the metaverse, I think what instantly pops into people's minds is this sort of image of this big, sexy, matrix-like technology, isn't it? But I suppose the reality of that and the way that it's applied is sort of in a practical sense certainly going to be very different than that. Definitely. Um, And there's so many different ways that we can apply it. And this convergence of what we call digital technology, so the mixture between the physical and digital experience, uh, the more and more they overlap, the um, the more questions are going to be asked about you know, what does that actually mean from a human psychological perspective and how it's implemented, the ethical implications of it. We, we don't do a lot of regulation around technology. We do for science, like if we were introducing a new uh, substance or something like that, it would go through testing, it would go through trials, we'd start to look at you know, how people react to it in different ways, but we don't have the same oversight and regulation over technology, so we kind of just implement and then we figure out the consequences later. Mm. Um, which is always a bit of a scary thought, particularly when we're coming to something that is literally going to change our economic, political and social landscape. It's trial and error very much, isn't it, in a sense? And um, I suppose um, when we sort of dumb the metaverse down into sort of the, the practical applications that can have commercial value for businesses, I mean, you talked about we've talked about sort of custom virtual meeting hubs. I mean, that's one way that we can sort of start out with this, isn't it? And that's sort of what you're specialising in, I guess. Yeah, and there's so many different applications, but realistically, it's, it's what happens when we make the web 3D and we stop, it be, stop our digital worlds being interacted with through screens and start really making it so they're, they're augmented and it's overlaid on our reality. Um, and that has huge, huge consequences of, of how we will operate as, as human beings within the worlds that we're in because our digital worlds will, will be very intuitive um, so at the moment, if you know you click on something, you click on your buy now button on on a website, or in the future, you you know going through a metaverse shop, you're going to be picking up an object and putting it in, in your car. Um, so the experience changes to be much more intuitive, but within that kind of leads to a lot of um, interesting questions around how we work as human beings within that space absolutely so and you talk about the web going 3d so is that essentially what web 3 is going to be all about sort of augmenting that experience and moving it away from you know the flat laptop screen to something that's going to be sort of fundamentally more interactive so not quite web 3 is how we kind of refer to the decentralization of the internet so um Mm. at the moment the if we look at uh, web 2 everything's centralized so if you for example 
If you want to upload a post to Facebook, then technically, because it sits on their servers, they own that content. Facebook are the biggest content creators, even though they don't create any content. Airbnb are the biggest real estate agent, even though they don't own real estate. Uber are the, are the biggest taxi firm, even though they don't own the taxis. Mm. Um, and that interface, essentially, Web2 was all about, well, you make your money through owning the interface. Whereas Web3 is more around how we decentralize that technology. So the fact that you don't necessarily have to have a centralized interface in order to be able to connect things together. So we could do things like, uh, you know, cryptocurrency is a good example, NFTs, um, you know, even the whole concept of distributed republics, which is how do our, you know, political systems work? How do we work? There's organizations called decentralized autonomous organizations, which essentially are what can you do with technology? Uh, to decentralize an organization so it doesn't necessarily have to have a hierarchical structure in order for people to, to do things because we can use smart contracting to be able to execute certain parameters automatically. And that changes the whole way that our, our systems work. So for the, the next power of the web, I suppose, as it increases in that power is how the, the implication of this new technology and the way that we utilize it and how we're able to do things that we weren't able to before. And you say, obviously, I mean, the uh, the order that we know today, obviously, Facebook's the biggest real estate agent, Uber's the biggest sort mm-hmm. of taxi owner, let's say. Um, do we think that, obviously, this technology, when, obviously, decentralization sort of comes into play, could this uh, potentially sort of start levelling the playing field a little bit for those smaller operators that are starting to maybe break through? Yeah, I mean, uh, I suppose the intentionality between Web3 is to restore the power to the individual. So in Web2 you didn't own your data, companies owned your data, and a lot of the time they made a lot of money from it. Uh, with Web3, you should be able to own your data, and you can choose to sell it, or you might choose to remain anonymous, but ultimately that sits within your choice. Um, so a lot of the kind of Web3 aspects are about restoring that power to, to individuals. And a lot of companies at the moment that have, you know, 2015 made their money from owning the interface won't work within the same way um, well, they might still stay centralized structures, but if we had, for example, a decentralized TikTok or something like that, mm. if as a content creator, if you upload your video to TikTok and somebody puts advertising on it, then technically you should get a cut of that advertising because mm. by, by having it as a, a smart contract, we could go, depending on the amount of visitors you bring in or the amount of revenue you bring in or anything like that, you should be able to benefit from that as, as a someone who owns that video maybe with an nft contract attached to it and stuff like that and um, so it's kind of about the content creators who um have, have been uploading things for free and you know platforms making money from it actually being able to benefit from their digital labor and digital contributions so that can go as far as even watching a video like you could be you could be compensated for your watch time mm. um because that still makes money for an organization so there's attention models that have currently been used um, can kind of be flipped and, and turned on the heads really within a decentralized um, technology kind of way. And the metaverse is one of those ones that it could have a decentralized element, but if you look at like Meta's vision for the metaverse, that's a centralized um, perspective for the metaverse. So there's lots of different ways that we can kind of look at the implementation and see how these things are going to evolve and be different. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost a rewriting of the digital economy, isn't it? I mean, it's taking that power away from the big sort of uh, operators there who choose to obviously pay their influencers. And it's obviously giving more power to those that are actually producing the content and putting it on those platforms rather than the platform itself, isn't it? 
Definitely. And I mean, that's the, the real opportunity for what I see from a, a digital economic justice perspective is to make sure that you know, people's digital contributions are rewarded um, proportionately and it's not that just platforms that are, are making the money from it. So yeah, it's um, one of the big ambitions that I have is around kind of teaching young people how to be able to benefit from their own digital labor because they might not have been able to participate because of centralized structures. And a lot of the time, centralized structures have, have create that marginalization that, that happens for people. Um, so if we can teach them how to use decentralized, how to leverage decentralized technology um, for their own benefit and how to be able to kind of profit from that, then that opens up a whole, a whole host of doors to people who might have already struggled because of centralized structures. Yeah, definitely. And as this sort of grows and becomes even more significant and plays more of a role in our day to day lives, I think something that we need to be very, very acutely aware of is the fact that, you know, in some of the more deprived communities out there, there are still issues with um, obviously internet connectivity, the access that people have to digital, the access to technology. And so closing that digital gap is going to be so, so, so important when we start to see technology playing an even greater role in our day-to-day lives. So that's something that we've got to very much focus on, I think, over the coming years. Definitely. Um, the, the digital gap is is the biggest concern. Every time the power of the web increases, those who have been stuck early on because of, you know, whatever various participation they might experience, be that access to technology, the knowledge of how to use that technology, mm. um, further and further those people fall behind and what we often see as our, our technologies in, uh, has enhanced over the last 10 years is those who already face inequity in a material world have those inequities magnified um, and ch- uh, combined with other inequities online as well so essentially we, we almost create this double uh, sense of marginalization um, because people have already not been able to participate or not able to participate fully. And that might be because of an accessibility aspect, that might be because of an enabling barrier or a policy barrier. But all of these aspects um, mean that those who are already struggling often are not accounted for. And we design things around those who are most able to participate rather yeah. than the largest audience possible. We do exactly. And uh, so that's certainly something that needs to be looked at. I mean, it's a staggering statistic, isn't it? That if you just look at the capital city alone, uh, 10% of Londoners don't actually own a smartphone. And um, if you are of a lower um, homing, so a household that's earning between sort of 6,000 and 10,000 pounds a year, only 51% of those households in the capital had home internet access. So that kind of just shows you the scale of the issue that we're trying to deal with here. Yeah. And then anytime we try to address it, there's often a, a huge pushback. I remember in the um, opposition manifesto for the last election, there was uh, discussions around uh, free internet access for, for low-income houses, and it went all over the news that broadband socialism. Um, but actually, then we had a global pandemic straight afterwards, and those young people who weren't able to get online have had you know two years of education that's completely passed them by in a, in a very different way because they just weren't able to participate. So when we when we don't address the, the wider issues around these kind of the social impact of technology, we really can put people at a further disadvantage, which is always very scary. 
Exactly that. And just thinking about, obviously, the uh, the next 12 months, because we are in a period of time where there are significant inflationary pressures. And so, you know, those that are in tricky situations are likely to lose out even more. And um, what sort of progress do you think that we sort of need to see in this area to kind of bridge that divide? And indeed as well, Jamie, um, what sort of milestones are you looking to pass um, sort of within your own business, given this exciting work that you've been doing? Yeah, it's um, so I think from a, a milestone perspective, it's really difficult to, to decide until we start the conversations, even when we look at the ethical implications from a, from a metaverse perspective, is you know how many people are actually considering what it means from an identity perspective, how many people are actually discussing from all sorts of communities how this kind of implementation of this technology is going to impact them. Um, and that's really the starting point because I wouldn't want to dictate milestones until we've actually got enough people in the room having the conversation to really think about all of the different angles. And I can consider it from one perspective, but there's, there's a lot of perspectives to be able to take on board for, for such a seismic change in literally something that is going to, not just the metaverse, but the metaverse and Web3, is going to completely shift the way that our economic, political, uh, and social systems work, and there's not really much of a conversation going on around it. Mm. Um, but from a, from a personal perspective, from a meta perspective, we're really just still at the beginning of a journey of getting these environments up and getting people used to being able to to work within a metaverse space. We've we've done conferences with people, and you know, a lot of the time, although a, a virtual environment is supposed to be more intuitive, if it's your first time going in it, it's never going to feel like it's the most intuitive thing. So there's a lot of education piece that we need to be able to do. As much as we're trying to, uh, to sell our products and wares, there's a lot of it around. I get clients come to me all the time and go, hey, we want to do something in the metaverse. I'm like, great, what do you want to do in the metaverse? And they go, what is the metaverse? And they're like, well, we kind of need to solve that that first problem a bit because there's the hype aspect and then there's the, the education aspect. Yeah. So at the moment, we're really just trying to kind of get people in the loop and hopefully that sells our services. But I think a lot of it comes from... Um, doing the education piece as well. Yeah, that's a huge part of it, isn't it? Making people aware that this technology exists and of the incredible potential that it has. And given that it is in a constant state of flux and it has the potential to change so much and we're not not talking about it and we're not aware of it, it's going to be interesting to see how the conversation does begin to develop over the coming months and indeed years. And I think, Jamie, as that becomes clearer, I mean, it'd be fantastic to maybe even catch up and have you back on the show just to talk about how it is developing and also even just catch up on what's going on within the business and where you are with these sort of, sort of incredible developments you're working on. Always happy to talk about the metaverse. So you never have to give me a second invitation. <laughs> Fantastic, Jamie. <laughs> and uh, I've, I've loved talking about it today. I mean, it's certainly been really yeah. interesting and incredibly eye-opening for myself as well. And I think it just sort of sets you straight, doesn't it? Because people, like I say, do have this um, just sort of maybe a little bit of a warped idea of what it's likely to be, sort of a Matrix-style mm-hmm. thing. And it's good to kind of understand the practical applications and where it can apply in sort of a real-world setting and how it can sort of almost permeate that real world but also change it make it more efficient and sort of make everyday even transactions let's say even more different yeah 100 percent. it's such a, a moving target at the moment and even how we envision the, what the metaverse is going to be like and, and the, the kind of the succession of the internet um is really still quite a conceptual stage and that's what i find people are are talking about a lot is the big ideas bit, but what I like to think that MetaHub does is we've got some practical applications for the here and now as well, and as well as thinking about what we can do for you tomorrow, is thinking about what we can do for you today, um, because too often people just love talking at that very high level, but without really um, thinking, you know, having having to experience or or move that 
um, technology forward into, well, actually, this is how we're using it right now. So, yeah, definitely an interesting space. Yeah, absolutely so. And um, if anybody is tuning in and is interested in finding out a little bit more about Jamie and the work that MetaHub does, uh, metahub.uk, would that be the best port of call, Jamie? Yeah, metahub.uk. And if it, for me personally, um, there's speakofbrett.net. Um, and that's got all kind of the details of, of uh, myself and you know some of the topics that we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And um, if you are sort of uh, somebody who is clued up on some of the matters that we've discussed today and you have your own views to share with us here at the Leaders' Council, then you can leave a comment via leaderscouncilalloneword.co.uk and that'll be at forward slash contact hyphen us. Um, or you can apply to be on the programme yourself via leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply and come and share your story with us. And that doesn't just have to be, of course, on the topics we've discussed today. If you run your own organisation, you're the head of a business, you can come and talk about those pertinent matters and issues to you as well. Um, Thank you, Jamie, for joining us on the uh, the programme today. It's been an immense pleasure having you with us. And by all means, do take care and do stay safe with all that's still going on. Thank you very much. Cheers for having me. And uh, yeah, look forward to yeah, talking to you about it in the future. It's been fantastic. And uh, to all of our listeners tuning in today, I do hope that you thoroughly enjoyed the interview with uh, Meta Hub's uh, Jamie Bickoff-Brett today. Um, and I've been your host, Scott Challoner, on the Leaders' Council podcast. I do hope that you've all enjoyed the interview. And please do take care and goodbye until next time.